couple of decades ago, armed with an economics degree, my guest today found himself at the front lines of protests against the Jabaluka uranium mine in Kakadu. It was a formative time as he began to recognise injustices in the world. He was eager to do something about it, and the greatest tool at his disposal was his background in economics. So, he set about learning as much as he could, and he soon began to appreciate the major impacts that finance has on how Australia develops. My guest is Simon O'Connor. These days, he's CEO of the Responsible Investment Association of Australia. They've got more than 240 members that collectively manage some $9 trillion of investments globally. So, you could say that working at the intersection of sustainability and finance has served him well. And if he wasn't busy enough, he's now also the co-chair of the Australia Sustainable Finance Initiative. It was launched last week with the aim, in their words, to drive a sustainable and resilient economy. One that prioritises human well-being, social equity and protection of our environment. It's a worthy ambition and that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm here to ask the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. As soon as I heard about the Sustainable Finance Initiative, I wanted to hear more and was pretty sure the good future audience would be interested as well. It's made up of the most influential players in Australian finance and it's laser-focused on crafting effective policy that not only helps kickstart Australia's progress towards the 2030 emissions targets that we agreed to in Paris, but also to capitalise on the massive economic opportunity that's emerging in clean energy, transport and agriculture. Simon was eager to tell us more. He jumped on the phone with very little notice and he offered a really compelling case for betting on sustainability. So let's get into it. Jump on the website for all the show notes at johntreadgold.com and you can drop me a message or a review on iTunes, which is much appreciated because it helps other people find the podcast. All right, please enjoy my conversation with Simon O'Connor. Here we go. Right, so Simon, great to have you on the show this morning. Now, I'm keen to talk about the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative, which was launched this week and of which you're one of two chair people. But before we get into that, it'd be great to hear a little about your day job, where you're CEO at the Responsible Investment Association of Australia. So our organisation is effectively a membership body who is set up under the specific mission to drive more capital into sustainable businesses and sustainable assets. It's really about aligning the financial markets with a more sustainable economy, society and environment. That's what we set ourselves of our task, using the finance sector to drive sustainability. We're shaped as a traditional industry body, I guess, in many ways, where we have about 240 investment organisations as members of our body. And we work with them to keep these investors up to speed on how sustainability issues ethical issues uh, impacting financial markets. So our members cross from sovereign wealth funds, superannuation funds, fund managers, all the way through to financial advisors and really everyone in between. And so we have a nice diverse 
membership base from very deep ethical investors and impact investors through to very large institutional investors who are looking at this stuff from an investment risk perspective. And so we, we work with all of them. Our members manage in the order of $9 trillion of, of investments globally. So it's a really big and significant cohort of members. Um, and yeah, we work with them to try to understand how sustainability matters in investment markets. Mm, oh, look, that's a really big member base. And, and it's interesting that you have that spectrum between those that see it as very much a competitive advantage of, of pursuing sustainability, but then at the other end that it's uh, a risk factor that, that's really unavoidable. Is that sort of the spectrum? And Does it get much broader than that? Every one of our members understands that there's now a lot more that drives investment markets and investment outcomes than just what's found in a profit and loss statement or an annual report of a, of a listed company, for example. And so all of them in some way, shape or form are trying to understand how, you know, what we call about the ESG, the environmental, social and governance factors um, are impacting on investment markets. Now, the reason they're considering that might be that it's coming from a real values-based perspective, an ethical perspective, that they want to achieve good and so they want to avoid harmful investments, or the, they might be coming to this conversation because they just want to um, avoid, you know, downside risk in, in their investments. So, for example, you know, w- we know that companies that mismanage the environment end up copying fines and their share price goes down. You just need to look at the VW example from their emissions scandal a few years ago that had a massive impact on their share price. Or we know that companies that disregard the community or don't really operate to really protect their kind of what we often call their social license to operate risk damaging their share price. And so our members, some of them might care about that from an ethical perspective. Some of them might care about that from an investment risk perspective, but all of them understand there's more that's driving investment markets than just what's found in a profit and loss statement. Sounds like you're very comfortable at that intersection of finance and sustainability. How did, how did you find yourself there? Did one come before the other? I um, entered university studying economics and a bit of arts and not really knowing where I was going and wondering why I was studying economics. And when I got to university, I started learning and getting exposed to a whole lot of issues in the world where I felt that there was sort of really big injustices occurring, I guess. And, and the one really formative moment, it was about 20 years ago, and there was a big protest movement against the Jabaluka uranium mine in Kakadu National Park. And I was looking at this going, right, this is really perverse that a company can make a decision to dig up a really dangerous material in a World Heritage listed national park against the wishes of the Indigenous owners. You know, this felt like to me that that should not have been going ahead for three very good reasons there. And and in fact, I found myself as possibly the only economic student jumping on a bus and going to blockade this site in Kakadu. And I spent two weeks up on this protest camp. And I guess what I realised from that, thinking that through, was that for me to be most impactful in terms of shifting this planet and this country and the way we operate to a more sustainable footing is that I kind of had to understand how finance works and what drives business decisions and what is the economics underpinning that. And so I guess that set me off on a bit of a journey to try to bring together kind of economics and sustainability. And I've sort of been fortunate enough to meet some good people along the way and kind of effectively come to the conclusion that these two things are entirely aligned. You know, there's often been the debate of economics versus the environment or jobs versus the environment or growth versus the environment. In fact, you know, I think the more we look at this, the more we understand that you cannot achieve economic prosperity 
and jobs and economic stability without looking after the environment and indeed society as well. So it's been this nice convergence of ideas. But yeah, it's been an interesting sort of path to get to where I'm working today. Interesting point about you know having that exposure to very you know tangible physical activism of sort of being on the on the line on the front lines, but then almost realizing that you know you've got a skill set, you've got a, a backing, a, an education that that's the way you can be more impactful. That actually maybe in the in the boardrooms is where you can have that impact. Yeah, that's right. And I guess I saw that the direction that finance flows in our economy is really what is going to shape our economy for the coming decades. You know, the investments being made today, it's the fuel of the economy, it's the fuel of the companies out there. And if that's flowing in the wrong direction, then that sets in train some very perverse and poor outcomes for our country, whether it's supporting the wrong kind of energy or the wrong kind of transport or the wrong kind of companies. So the direction that flows is really important to our future sustainability. So I guess that's sort of how I end up here in this role currently, seeing as finance as a potentially a very big lever to shape Australia as one that's either more sustainable or really unsustainable or one that's more equitable or really inequitable or one that's sort of, you know, deteriorating our natural assets and our resources and our barrier reef and our forests or one that actually preserves them and really helps to integrate them into the sort of economic story and social story for Australia and our nation. Yeah, well, and you've got a lot of members to look after there. If you weren't busy enough already, you're now helping lead the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative. It was launched this week. Can you give us a quick pitch about the initiative? Who's involved and, and what do you hope to achieve? Yeah, so I guess what's really driven in Australia to date this focus on responsible investment and responsible finance has been more about one that investors get that this stuff matters and they have to consider it because it's driving markets so it's you know basically just good investment practice two that our clients and our consumers are increasingly asking their super funds and their banks how they want to invest their money and what they don't want to invest in so there's sort of that consumer demand thing but the big piece that's been missing in australia is the policy environment to support more sustainable finance and what we've observed over the last couple of years is this big push globally to embed in financial systems and in the regulation around financial systems, sustainability really deeply into that regulation. And yet we've not seen that in Australia. So we, we've really felt that we want to push that as the next big driver for sustainable finance in Australia. And so we set in train a process to try to pull together a collaboration across the financial sector. So including banks, superannuation funds, investors, insurance organisations, and some academics to say, well, how might we advocate for a stronger policy settings that can really align the finance sector to do some of the heavy lifting so that we can achieve the Paris Agreement and our sustainable development goals. And how do we really get the finance sector to be acting in concert and supporting these really important national objectives? And so we've just this week announced this initiative. We've been working on it for probably a year to pull it together, doing a lot of the work to get the right parties around the around the table so that it's not just the Responsible Investment Association advocating for these policy changes. It's actually the big four banks and the big major insurers and the big superannuation funds. And so our work kind of starts now, which is about saying, well, what are the really important policy settings that can unlock the financial markets to be doing more to support the Paris Agreement, our low emissions trajectory and achieving the SDGs and really embedding positive impact in the way we invest money in the Australian economy. And so the outcome is, is a roadmap. Can you give us a, you know, sort of what the actual product will be? Where we want to get to by next year is effectively a set of recommendations or a roadmap, which would say, well, these are the things we think really need to change in 
policy, in legislation, in regulation, in codes of conduct and practice in Australia to ensure that the finance sector is heading in the right direction to support these big sustainability goals. And so that's our roadmap that we'll present in about a year's time. That'll probably require a response from federal government, state government, from our regulators to change some of the laws, to embed some of these sustainability concepts into legislation. So what does that look like in practice? I mean, this is pretty sort of high level and intangible, but what we're starting to see come out of Europe, who are sort of two years ahead of us here, is they've just started legislating some of the changes that have come out of their sustainable finance roadmap. And that's changing the game quite substantially. For example, two weeks ago, some regulation went through in Europe, basically enforcing that you are now, as an investor, you're effectively breaching the law if you're not considering climate change risk in all of your investments and the way you do banking and insurance. So we now know that climate change is so significant to achieving investment outcomes and for financial success that if you're not considering it, you're breaching your best interest duty to your clients. And so now it's sort of switched from just this is something you can do and you may do to something you must do. And so these are the kind of things we want to start embedding in the financial system now so that all investors are considering all of these issues and contributing much more positively to a sustainable society in Australia. Yeah, and so driving, you know, that best interest point, almost a fiduciary duty, is it trying to push the integration of ESG factors more deeply in investment decision making to sort of make it the status quo rather than an optional extra? Yeah, definitely. I think what it will become, it will set the minimum standard for all financial services will be to consider ESG factors and climate change factors. And for us, what's really important that, yeah, the minimum standard lifts, but we really want to push the front end of the market too. And so the the next step beyond that is saying, well, how about we actually, in a more comprehensive way, understand the full set of impacts that all of our investment decisions are having? How do we start assessing our portfolio's impacts against sustainable development goals, against their contribution to a net zero emissions target by 2050. And so the bottom of the market needs to lift, but the top of the market, we really need to show the way as to how we really direct capital strongly in a positive way. Mm, I'm I'm really interested in the language that was used. I'm a a writer after all, but the launch documents talk about driving, and I quote, a sustainable and resilient economy, one that prioritises human well-being. I think that's really interesting and, and, you know, surely prioritising human well-being should always be at the top of our list. But what's been holding us back from that in the past? Oh, there's so much holding us back. I think as an economist and someone who's a little bit perversely fixated on valuation, I think we're really crap at valuing the stuff that really matters and it doesn't turn up in our GDP accounts. It doesn't turn up in our discounted cash flow models of how we value stocks and investments. And so we forget that our investments have an impact on well-being of society, on the environment, beyond just on the sort of investment returns we're going to get over the next quarter or year. And so I think I think we need to take a broader view of valuation and to really understand how all these big investment decisions are actually impacting on society and human well-being. It's interesting to see the New Zealand government is setting in place some living standards frameworks where every big budget decision in New Zealand will have to make an assessment as to how this is impacting the well-being of New Zealanders. Is it reducing child poverty, for example? Is it improving literacy, mortality rates, health rates for the society? And it's these kinds of issues that you say, right, how do we start embedding that in our assessments of investment. I mean, the short answer to your question is it's really bloody hard and I don't think it's going to be an easy one to solve. And we've sort of set ourselves an incredibly ambitious objective by including these words and these concepts, but we've intentionally put them in there to stretch ourselves. We've kind of made a view that when we come out with this recommendation, these roadmaps, and then maybe we get legislation a year after that, 
we're going to be well and truly into the 2020s. And we're really looking at a very short time frame now to be delivering on Paris Agreement emissions reductions and SDGs. And so we really need to be setting a very high objective here for the work we're doing. But it's hard. And I think there's a high risk that we struggle to fulfil the ambition that we've set ourselves there. But we're going to start with that high ambition and see what we can do with it. Mm, yeah, that's right. And, and uh, I don't think we can any longer make jokes about New Zealand. They used to be the poor cousin, but now they're jumping ahead of us in, in so many different factors. And valuation and GDP and these sorts of issues are, are a huge one that we've been dealing with for so long. Could we ever wean ourselves off relying on GDP, do you think? I did a lot of work on this when I was an economic advisor at the Australian Conservation Foundation. And we concluded the GDP is fine as a measure. It's just that it's taken out of context as to how we use it. We use it as a de facto measure for well-being and societal progress. And it's not that and it was never intended to be that. And so rather than getting rid of GDP, we kind of just need to dethrone it. You know, it just should not be used as this all-encompassing single indicator that we worship at the altar of, you know, and that is reported in our press. It's like, well, actually some of the world's leading Nobel laureate economists came up with a conclusion that we really need a bit of it a more sophisticated dashboard of indicators to measure whether our economic activity and growth is delivering on the stuff that's really meaningful for Australians or humans or society. And we kind of almost need a conversation as to what it is we actually want to deliver through all this economic activity and all this busyness that we all have. And I think the SDGs have gone some way in presenting that to us. You know, they're big global goals. They set a bit of a target for us. And I think we need to make sure that we're measuring the stuff that kind of matters if that's what we want to actually achieve. So GDP's fine. There's lots of ways you can amend it and improve it and there's lots of flaws in it, but it's just taken out of context for how we use it effectively. Uh, you know, in this drive towards sustainability, there's so many opportunities in, in renewable energy and all these sorts of things. But then at the other end of the spectrum, finance can be quite secondary. It's not the banks themselves building coal-fired power plants, but they're financing them. So what's the, the mechanism? Is it regulation? Is it sort of uh, that would, you know, leave stranded assets and that sort of thing? Is that stranded asset risk? Yeah, it's a really good point, actually. And it's this sort of secondary impact stuff. But I think we're moving beyond that thinking a little bit through this whole concept of stewardship. And I think what we're seeing is investors and bankers who are financing particular projects and companies are realising they actually have ownership responsibilities on those things they are financing. And they can't think of them as just some passive investor in these assets. And I think we're seeing a, a significant shift there where the finance community is taking much more responsibility for the actions of the companies that they're investing in. And so, for example, you're seeing really strong signals and engagement activities and voting against companies and directors when companies are acting in a way that's just inconsistent with what the expectations would be of investors and society. So you look at the moment, for example, there's a whole lot of investors going really hard against Facebook for the fact that they are claiming no responsibility for publishing and distributing hate materials and streaming, you know, the Christchurch massacre. And so you're seeing some of the sovereign wealth funds in New Zealand engaging with them to say that's just actually not adequate anymore. You know, as an investor in your company, that's unacceptable. And so I think we're seeing this sort of shift where capital is stepping up to be much stronger stewards and owners of the companies and taking back that responsibility of ownership, not being silent investors and willing to kind of flex their ownership muscle to influence corporations. And so I think that's really positive. I think there's a ways to go yet, but you know, we're seeing that come through at AGMs where there's a whole lot of resolutions being put forward against the companies, calling them to account. Another good example is you know, the, the lobbying activities 
of the Minerals Council of Australia and actually call into account the members of the Minerals Council to say, hey, Minerals Council are advocating pro-coal, anti-Paris agreement, and you as a company and a member that have really strong commitments to climate change. Like, that's just not okay anymore. And so we've seen some strong lobbying on the companies to call out that behaviour and to rein in the Minerals Council, for example, to the extent that we saw the CEO leaving the Minerals Council as a result of that. Mm, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think there's so many different stakeholders now and influences on companies. People often would think it's just, oh, look, I'm the customer, I have the power. But that's true to an extent. But then on the other side of that is the investors also having that impact. And we see that at AGMs and voting and those sorts of things. What's kind of arming the investors more is actually that down the chain, one step further is us as consumers, as Australians, as beneficiaries are kind of much more proactively engaging with our super funds or our banks to tell them what our expectations are. And that's almost giving license to these super funds to be stronger in advocating these positions. So I think it's been a fantastic shift to see many more Australians sending letters to their super funds, emailing them, asking questions around what they're investing in, whether it's tobacco or human rights or coal and fossil fuels. And so that's been a really important and significant impetus for the investment community to step up on these issues too. Yeah, I think that's been really powerful. You know, I think people have been so apathetic about their super for so long, which is really odd because it is their money and it's their investment. But it's really great to see that part of the reason they're engaging more is for that ethical, that sort of feeling that they want their investments aligned with their values. So, you know, and you've obviously seen that a lot with your members that sort of, I guess, driven some of their wanting you to, to build that up. Yeah, I mean, that's been huge. And so we do sort of as a pretty regular consumer research just to understand how strong the sentiment of Australians are around these issues and how much Australians really do care that their own retirement savings are not invested in a way that's inconsistent with their values. And when we ask these kinds of questions of Australians through polling type structures, we get a 90% of Australians saying, of course, I want you to consider my ethics and values. Of course, I don't want my money invested in tobacco companies or companies using child labour or manufacturing cluster munitions. So I think this realisation is feeding through to funds that for them to act in the best interest of their clients absolutely entails respecting and understanding their values and investing consistent with that. And so that's kind of been quite a big shift and really significant in terms of progressing this whole discussion across the industry. Yeah, that's great to hear that people are having that impact. And then maybe a little bit closer to home, if there, if there are folks at work in their cubicle, maybe they work in finance and they're trying to influence their organisation to focus more on sustainability, to think more long term. Do you have any advice for them? People sort of, you know, thinking of a career shift, wanting to work with more purpose? You know, I think what's fantastic is there's very few financial organisations in this country anymore that don't have some committed resource to responsible investment, sustainable finance, ESG, any of these kinds of areas. And you've really got an increase in capacity and staffing going on in most of the financial services organisations across Australia now. So there's great opportunity to get involved in that within your own organisations now. I mean, and if you're sort of sitting there within an organisation who hasn't kind of bought into this, all you need to do is point to recent speeches from the Reserve Bank of Australia and the APRA as the regulator and just to see how important this has become as a core economic issue for financial services companies to manage. And if they're not, they've currently been scrutinised by APRA. So I think it's an area where we're finally at a time where sustainability issues and ethical issues are really kind of front and centre for finance and need to be front and centre. And so yeah, there's lots of opportunity to get involved and to push that case. I think there's often 
a need to start by expressing this as this is just sensible finance and sensible investment. To not consider this means you're missing out on some of the really key information that drives the success of the business you're working within. And then I think we can sort of start saying, well, and in addition, this is stuff that actually gives people a much greater sense of purpose in the work that they're doing and people feel much more um, engaged and, and keen to come to work on a daily basis. You know, it's, it's nice to think that the finance sector, which has traditionally been, you know, not the most trusted and respected profession in some ways, can actually be playing a really key role in driving a better society and environment in Australia and is really critical to us achieving what most Australians want from a more prosperous and sustainable and equitable and higher rates of human well-being across our country. So I think that's really satisfying for those of us in finance who want to be actually contributing to a, to a better Australia. Well, that's it. There's so many opportunities, aren't there, in terms of, you know, a new market opening up. We've got lots of sunshine. We've got lots of great innovators and researchers. But at the same time, companies will then be able to uh, attract the best employees because that's, uh, that's part of the remuneration now, wanting to work with purpose. Totally. Okay, well, look, Simon, we organised this one rather quickly, so I really appreciate you giving me some time this morning to talk about the new initiative. But before we go, I'll need a book recommendation. Is there, is there anything on your side table that uh, you'd like to share? Yeah, well, I've usually got a bunch of half-read books in on my side table that I fall asleep at uh, reading most nights. But one that's probably been most influential recently is a book by an English economist by the name of Kate Raworth, and it's called Donut Economics. And it's just a really nice and quite approachable book that talks about how economic systems need to sit within the physical and natural and social systems that we operate in. And it's kind of putting economics back in its place within the broader ecosystem and and the planetary boundaries, really. And it does a really good job of setting a framework to help people understand how economic systems need to sort of interact with natural and social systems. So that's, that's a great read, I reckon, and well worth having a look at. There's some good little videos online about it as well. Donut Economics. All right, I'll keep an eye out for that one. Thanks for that. And uh, we'll stay in touch and, and keep an eye on all the work. Great. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on.